Good morning, everybody. Welcome. It's good to have you here today. Go ahead and take a seat. I love seeing you all being so friendly and encouraging and welcoming each other. That's a great thing. Good to have you here this morning. Uh, Again, I'm Len. I'm one of the pastors. Paul, our lead pastor, is away this weekend, and I get the privilege and joy to share with you. And so here I am. Uh, So last week after the Super Bowl, a a new version of 24, called 24 Legacy, started uh, up, and in my family we love 24. Just the cliffhangers and the intensity and even the little sounds of the countdown just raises your blood pressure. Just a great show. We love it. And in this series, the new season, there is a storyline thread that is taking place, uh, a tale as old as time of greed and theft and selfishness and the fallout effect that it has on everybody involved. And basically, it's ripped off from the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning here in Joshua. And so some soldiers, they go in to fight the battle and carry out the mission that they were sent there for. And while there, uh, one takes some of the plunder, despite being told not to. And the consequences are direly severe. And so we're continuing this morning in our series called Facing the Future. And we chose to look at the book of Joshua um, uh, for the beginning of our new year because we feel that 2017 holds a, a, a great deal of promise for all of us. And and I certainly hope that each of you personally in your lives just take new strides and advances in in many areas of your life, but especially uh, in your spiritual growth as you grow deep with others, particularly in your life groups, uh, and find ways to see God work through you in serving other people. Joshua is all about taking action on the promises of God. And while there is a ton of history, uh, interesting even, uh, there is even more application for our lives today. There is also great application for us as a church as we're looking to move into new areas of vision and commitment over this year. So let's go ahead and pray um, before we get looking at this text and ask God uh, to be with us in a way that we just... Uh, see him new and afresh. God, thank you so much for your truth in your word, Uh, and even truth written and experienced thousands of years ago in history. God, it's still relevant today, so much so that Hollywood decides to rip it off for their storylines. God, if it's relevant for a story to keep people going, it's relevant for our lives, and I pray, God, that you would help us um, just draw from the truth uh, from it, that you would uh, just transform us and grow us to become more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, all of us have made choices at one time or another that led to some, um, some problems, right? Everybody here on that one? That's an easy statement, I think. We all have done something, uh, and we make choices that we just kind of blow it at times, but what do we do when that happens? Um, we've, we've all made decisions that were not what God wanted for us. They weren't the best that he had for us. And so the Bible says there is not a single person in all the earth who is always good and never sins. And that's true. Not a single person. So if you think today as you're sitting there that you're the only person who has done that, just look to the person next to you, around you, because they're they're sinners too. They've messed up. They've made choices. And you're not the only one struggling with that. We're right here with you this morning. So what do you do when you've done that? What, you've, you've made a choice in your past and you're struggling with the consequences of it. You might be 
failing at a marriage. You might be crippled by addiction to pornography. You might have caved in to a temptation or something maybe you even did back in junior high or high school and it still comes back to you. Somewhere along the way, you ignored God's warnings, God's best for you and his directions for you and you're wondering if there is any hope at all. You're trying to figure out what to do with it. And yes, it would have been better if we never messed up, right? It would have been better if we always followed uh, the wise choices that God has for us. But at some point, we all chose poorly. And so today we're going to talk about what it means to walk through the gateway of hope. Now, let me bring you up to speed, kind of a recap of where we're at in Joshua. The whole population of Israel was camped on the other side of the Jordan River after being in the desert for 40 years. And God moves them across the Jordan by stopping the river, and they cross over on dry land. They take out the military fortress of Jericho, which is crucial because they need to capture Jericho in order to go further and deeper into the land. Now, if you look to the uh, west of Jericho, uh, the, the topography becomes more hill country, and, and uh, on the top of that are, uh, on every hilltop, well, not every, but lots of hilltops, there are various cities and, uh, that need to be taken over, and one of the very first is Ai, Ai, it's hard to pronounce, and you'll get messed up on it when you look at it, I think it's Ai, and so um, they, they need to take that town. And by doing so, you can see they cut the, the uh, land in half north to south, and they can take over and control the, the trade routes and the various journeys, and that will set them up to take over the land that God has led them to. And so it says now in Joshua that Joshua sent some of his men from Jericho to spy out the city of Ai. When they returned, they told Joshua, it's a small town, and it won't take more than two or 3,000 of us to destroy it. There's no need for all of us to go there. In other words, send the B team. No problem. We got this. So approximately 3,000 warriors were sent, but they were soundly defeated. The men of Ai chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the quarries, and they killed about 36 who were retreating down the slope. The Israelites were paralyzed with fear at this turn of events, and their courage melted away. Translation, they got their tails whipped. They were freaked out. What's going on here? And their response to this, Joshua and the elders of Israel tore their clothing in dismay, threw dust on their heads, and bowed down facing the ark of the Lord until evening. Then Joshua cried out, O sovereign Lord, why did you bring us across the Jordan River if you're going to let the Amorites kill us? And God steps in, as he so often does, and it says this, but the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why are you lying on your face like this? Israel has sinned and broken my covenant. They have stolen some of the things that I commanded uh, must be set apart for me. And they have not only stolen them, but they have lied about it and hidden the things among their own belongings. That is why the Israelites are running from their enemies in defeat. Now, okay, as we get started this morning, let's just get one thing out there. If you have already read this chapter... Uh, in advance knowing that we're working through Joshua or as we read some of the passages today and you see it for the first time, one can't help but ask about what's up with this anger of God, this wrath of God. 
This is uh, one of the chapters is an example that people use to talk about the Old Testament God being mean and angry. And many even say something like it. Maybe you're one of them who said, I like the New Testament God much better than the Old Testament God. You know, he's nicer and warm and fuzzy than Old Testament God's mean. And I'm here to tell you this morning that there is only one God. One God. And there are times that God um, revealed himself in history in ways that maybe we don't understand, but they had a long game purpose of what he was trying to do, a larger purpose of rolling out his rescue plan for all of mankind to be taken and rescued back from the grips of sin. And I would suggest that the reason we fail to understand God and his his anger is, is that we don't really understand sin. See, for a lot of us, all of us at some point in our life, sin doesn't really bother us all that much. And so we don't get, we don't understand God's reaction to it all that well. So as you read these accounts, as you hear this this morning, I I want to ask you to reframe your filter, adjust your filter. Instead of seeing God as overreacting, acknowledge that the sin or the violation has more impact than you realize. Give God the benefit of the doubt that perhaps, just perhaps, he knows what he's doing. All right? Because, see, his anger is not unwarranted. It's not unjustified. And his anger is due to what sin does to people. He loves us. He is passionate for us. He is even, as the Bible describes at some points, jealous in the purest sense of the word that he does not want to share us with sin and its effects on our lives. But anger is only one of his traits, and it's matched with his mercy and his compassion, and it hurts him to see those he loves caught in the snares of sin. So I want to take a few moments this morning and look at some of the principles about sin that this passage shows us. First off, sin can short-circuit God's plan in our lives. There is an arrogance about sin. It's at the very heart of its nature. The part of all of us that think we don't need God, or we can do whatever we want, or we can self-rule. And even when we do have those, those times in our lives, those incredible experiences with God, and we turn our lives over to Him and begin to experience the transformation and the promises of his blessing in our lives, and it grows and shows itself. Even then, there are times where we can get off track and mess things up. You see, God promised this land to Israel. He showed himself mighty at the Jordan River by drying it and opening up the river for them. He showed himself mighty at Jericho when he gave them the city. But then all of a sudden, this little upstart town defeats them. And the cause? a direct disobedience to God's direction. And God lets them know that the sin broke this covenant. And a covenant is a mutual relationship, a mutual promise. And God was giving his blessings and promise to them, but Israel broke it. They messed it up. And sin causes this separation between us and God. And not just us and God, but all that God desires for us. God is 
good, and his goodness is seen all throughout the Bible and all of history. But our sin, ours and others, people, hinders or even prevents his goodness from being realized in our life sometimes. Now, to be clear, not all trials and difficulties that we go through are the result of some sin in your life, all right? I don't want you to go around being all paranoid. Okay, I've got a struggle. What did I do? What did I do? Because that's not how God wants us to live. But I also don't want us just to out of hand dismiss the, the possibility that it may be our sin. We need to be aware that maybe there is that issue. And the reason why is because the next thing, sin is easy. Sin is easy. They find out who took the stuff. It was a man named Achan. And this is what Achan says. I saw a beautiful robe imported from Babylon. 200 silver coins and a bar of gold weighing more than a pound. I wanted them, and I took them. Now look at that. I saw, I wanted, I took. We're not talking a complicated process here, are we? We're just not. Sin is easy. Sinning against God is not all that hard, and we do it all the time. And sometimes we just sort of rationalize it, it kind of excuse it away. Have you ever done that? It, you know, it, no, it wasn't all that bad. Maybe a customer pays late and to get back at them from their next order, you don't give them the service they deserve, or something like that. Or, or maybe you're at school and you're taking a test, and it's hard not to cheat because, you know, everybody else around you is doing it too, so why not? Or maybe you make statements like this, well, at least it wasn't fill in the blank. That's marginalizing it. Maybe it wasn't as bad as that, but that doesn't mean it wasn't bad, right? But we do that all the time. And I don't know what Aiken was thinking. Perhaps he was saying everybody else is doing it. It's just a little pound of gold. Really? That's a lot, you know? It's just a little thing. You know what? The army doesn't pay all that much anyway. I deserve it. I don't know what he was thinking, but those are things that he very easily could have been thinking because that's what we do, right? And because it is so easy to sin, even for those of us who have been following God for years and years and years, we need to guard our hearts, as the Bible says. That's why we get in life groups or have accountability partners. That's why we set up behaviors and habits to help keep us from sin. It's not because we just want to be a rule keeper and be all prude and all that. It's because we want to protect and cherish this relationship we have with God. And we know how easy it is to mess it up. It just is. So next, we realize that sin impacts other people. But the Lord said to Joshua, Get up! Why are you lying on your face like this? Israel has sinned and broken my covenant. It was one guy who took the items. But we are told, Israel sinned. You ever hear that phrase, there's sin in the camp? This is where it comes from. This is the, the location or the, the beginning of that phrase. Because there's something about sin. There's something about that that's in the group that just sort of pulls things down and messes things up. It steals momentum. It, it, it draws attitudes. It changes things. And sin in the camp cannot be left unchecked. There is a splatter effect to sin. One guy is to blame for this, 
yet others suffer. One guy is to blame for this, yet sometimes others share in the responsibility. Does it happen today? Of course it does. And the big and obvious examples that we've been seeing in the news, sadly, over the recent months is something like a, a guy going into a mall or a nightclub and shooting the place up. One person's wicked choices hurts and destroys other people's lives. But it also happens in our homes over and over and over, building and spreading. You ever blow up in temper? You ever say words in anger that even as they're coming out, you're just trying to reel them back in, but you can't? You ever be like that wet blanket and you say a discouraging word that takes the wind out of somebody's sails, their hopes and dreams you just squash? It happens all the time. Do you ever see what it does? Do you ever notice or look at the impact that it has? The fact is, is that some of you are hurting because of someone's sin. A parent, a partner, a friend, workmate, someone in school. The fact is, is that someone is getting hurt because of your sin. There is no such thing as a victimless sin. And you just can't know and understand the cracks that it spills into and pours out into that lasts over time and builds and grows. Okay, so we see that sin's a big deal, isn't it? And maybe by seeing that, we have a clearer understanding of why God does respond in the anger and, and, uh, and, and punishing, wanting to deal with that sin like he does. Particularly in regards to his bigger plan of how he's revealing himself in the Old Testament. If we understand the layout of history, is that God is trying to introduce to all of mankind a covenant of friendship with him, a, 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 a plan to remove or bring the world back from sin. And all the other nations of the world are caught up in polytheism and pagan and idol worship. And God sets Israel apart as a shining example of what can be in hopes that all the other nations of the world would see this beautiful relationship with a God who loves them. And Israel goes and messes it up at the very beginning. God's not pleased with that. God wants to see something more happen. And so what does that mean to us personally and as a church? How do we deal with that? Well, in verse 13, God says, Get up, command the people to purify themselves in preparation for tomorrow. As we face our future, both personally and as a church together, um, there's a preparation that needs to take place. It's not just about making plans or what college, what company, where should we live, how should we build this building. It's, it's more about um, character and faith and trust and perseverance and devotion and obedience. We need to, need to lean in to experience what God has for us and even more so who he desires us to become. In our relationship with God, there is a part that he promises to play in our lives. But there's also a part that we play. We just don't sit on the sidelines and let him zap us. No, we get skin in the game and we're a part of it. And we're, we put some effort into our faith. Choices get made. And so I want to focus a bit on the our part area for a moment. What do we do with this? 
Well, the first is, is that we figure out what the sin is. Here in the story, God took them through a process to identify the person who stole the item. Achan didn't just come forward. God exposed him. I mean, there were two, three million people here. He probably thought he, you know, could, you know, just get lost in the crowd and nobody would ever know. But that's not how God works. And if you read the story, and I won't go through all the verses, but there's just all of a sudden this weaning down to all of a sudden this God light just kind of shines on Achan and he is, he is called out. And sometimes we get called out. But wouldn't it be so much better if we called ourselves out, if we were just honest about what's going on in our lives, with the help of the Holy Spirit, just come quickly to realize, ah, oh, I blew it. How much better that is. Identify on your own with God's help. Be self-aware of your flaws, and not just your quirks and your oddities, but your actual propensity to sin in the ways that you do. You know what trips you up better than anybody else. You know what your temptation areas are. You know what your struggles are. So be real about them. Be honest about it. Instead, you know, most of us, we just don't like to acknowledge our flaws and our brokenness and our sin. We don't, that's not what we just like to wake up every day and start talking about. Instead, we develop these behaviors, first, where we minimize it. You know, we say, ah, it's not a big deal. It's not all that bad. Or we do something like rationalize it. You know, lots of people are doing it. I know that there are people who do a lot worse. Or we do something probably a lot more than even the other two, is we blame. The Bible says you're always ready to accuse your own brother and find fault with him. And we use blame to deflect attention off of us. You know, someone points out something we did, perhaps a sibling or a spouse, and they said, you know, I didn't really like when you did that. That just hurt me or you didn't care for that. And instead of owning it, instead of saying, you know, you're right, we respond with something like, well, you know what, you do that too. Or I don't like when you did that. And we just redirect it. We deflect it right off of us and blame the other person. We all do that. It's human nature. We do that. We want to protect ourselves. But instead, we need to figure out what our sin is and be real about it. We need to next admit it. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, by telling the truth. Make your confession and tell me what you've done. Don't hide it from me. Now, confess literally means to agree. Uh, agree with it, not that it's good or that it's right, but agree with God that it's wrong and you've done it. It's saying, God, you're right. It's not minimalizing. It's not rationalizing. It's just admitting it. David said, I recognize my fault. I'm conscious of my sin. And then he says, finally, I confessed all of my sins to you and stopped trying to hide them. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Now, an important side note here that I want to throw in is that as a church, as people confess in our life groups or church conversations that you have with people, a way to tell if we're a healthy church or that you are healthy in your faith is to see how you respond. The goal is to respond with grace. Grace revealed to people. Grace is not, oh no, don't worry about it. It's okay. I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. That's not grace. 
Grace is also not. You dirty sinner, you disgust me. Go away, I don't want to see you until you get things fixed and dealt with. That's not grace either. Grace is, you're right, you have blown it. And I love you, and I've blown it too, and together we're going to walk through a journey to restore, to figure out how to become more like Christ together. That's grace. That's grace. That's what God calls us to as individuals. That's what God calls our church to. You should be able to count on that from your fellow church people, and we should be the type of person that offers that to others around us. See, you really only have two options, and that is confession or condemnation. You can confess it and get it off your chest and out of your life, or you can walk around in condemnation. And I ask that you accept, our third thing here is accept God's forgiveness. Much better place to be. But a lot of people never get beyond step two to step three. They can't reconcile it in their brain. And maybe they've confessed it somewhere along the way, but they just still don't feel forgiven. They feel instead like they, still, they should be punished somehow. It needs to be worse. There needs to be some consequences here. And they just wrestle with that all the time. They don't feel forgiven. Instead, they hold on to guilt and to shame. But the Bible says there is no condemnation for those who live in Christ Jesus. A lot of people say, I can't come to God unless I clean up my life. And, and instead, it's the opposite that's true. It's at that time that you should come to God because he needs to be part of it. You can't come to God unless he's part of the process of cleaning you up. Instead, guilt keeps them away. And I've been working professionally at churches for a long time now, and I've seen people who will just be gone for weeks and months at a time, and you, you're like, what, what happened? And I was like, I felt too guilty to come and be around, and you know, just, I, had to, I had to get things right. And that is just so unproductive. That is not what God wants for us. Instead, it's at those times that you should be pressing in even more to church and to God and to experience the freedom that he offers you because there just is no place for guilt. There is no place for it. It is an absolutely useless emotion. It leads you to withdraw and to isolate, to pull yourself away from all the hope and help that is available to you. Instead, instead, God is calling you to lean in to community Instead of guilt, to choose something called godly sorrow. Paul wrote this, For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. Now, there is a pain that comes and is associated with acknowledging our sin and the hurt that it caused you and God and others. There is a pain and, and I can understand the, the idea of going to guilt with that. But instead, that pain should move from guilt to a sorrow that leads to a repentance, that leads to a salvation or forgiveness in Christ. And it is at that point that you are set free from the eternal consequences. And the Bible says this, Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen? Will God? No. He is the one who has given us a right standing with himself. 
which then says, what do we do next? Well, we get rid of the wrong in our life. Joshua said to Achan, why have you brought trouble on us? The Lord will now bring trouble on you. All the Israelites stoned Achan and his family and burned their bodies. They piled a great heap of stones over Achan, which remains to this day. That is why the place has become or has been called the Valley of Trouble ever since. So the Lord was no longer angry. Okay, that's a difficult passage, isn't it? That's what I was referring to about the anger of God. And we have a hard time with that one. I mean, let's be honest. Stoning for stealing, burning of the bodies and the whole family. And, and we wrestle with that one. And we should wrestle with that one. But just consider this. Who knows how much worse things would have been if this sentence had not been carried out? Who would have been taken down and brought into this kind of behavior? Who would have, who would have been responsible for short-circuiting God taking Israel into the promised land? You see, before we conclude that it wasn't fair, let's remember what it says in the New Testament. The New Testament, God writes, for the wages of sin is death. One God. Same response to sin. Sin deserves death. It was fair. And thank God he is not fair with us all the time. Thank God we don't get what we deserve. Sin is that bad. But he offers grace, which is the next half of that verse. But the gift of God is eternal life. Grace. For those of you that were here a couple of weeks ago, you may see the contrast of this one pile of stones here to remind us of the power and greatness of God when they came through the Jordan River. In fact, we handed out stones that weekend to help us remember that God has promises in store for us and he leads us through. And now we have the contrast of this other pile of stones that is there as a reminder of God's justice and holiness and expectation of us to follow him in obedience. We need to be honest with ourselves and deal with our sin directly and strongly. Yes, we have been forgiven. But Paul writes this, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since you have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? It just doesn't make sense, does it? Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. Is it a struggle? Of course it is. That's why we need each other in authentic community. And that's why I love recovery groups, AA and, and groups like that. They're truthful about their struggles, and they work the plan together. There's honesty and openness about it, and they work through the struggles. But there's a falling short that happens. Because when you bring in the reality of the absolute freedom and forgiveness that God offers, and you bring that into the mix, well, then you have what God calls church. That's his intention of church. Authentic community that acknowledges that we are sinners and working through this relationship with God to experience his blessing and his promises. That's what he wants for all of us. 
Now, I'm not saying that you put it out there all the time. You wake up every morning and every person you see, this is my sin for the day and I'm really struggling with this. You know, don't just put it out there. Of course not. There's times and safe people and places that you do that. But oversharing is not nearly as bad as keeping secrets and hiding and denial. Be real. Be authentic. And you find the healing and transformation that God has for you. And then finally you can do the next step, which is to live confidently. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid or discouraged. Take the entire city, uh, take the entire army and attack Ai, for I have given you the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. If you have dealt with it, then live it. If you have dealt with it, then live like it. Don't mope about it. Don't live in self-punishment. Don't ever say, I blew it and God will never use me again. How long should you feel bad? Maybe 30 seconds? Because that's about how long it takes to, to identify it, to admit it, to accept it, and to get rid of it. God forgives instantly and completely. He says this to us, but now you are free from the power of sin and become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. You see what? You, have, you now have choices, real choices. Before you were slaves to sin, you had no choice. You were caught up in its snares and you were being pulled down. But now you are free in Christ. And in that freedom, you have choices to live differently. You have choices that lead to holiness and to result in eternal life. You are free in Christ, so live it. Live like it. When you say no to sin, you you have to say yes to something. And that's what that verse says up there. When you say no to sin, you have to say yes to something. And I say, say yes to Jesus. Because he's got a plan for you. You create this, when you say no to something and you get rid of it in your life and you, you say no to sin and doing that, you create a vacuum, a hole that needs to be filled with something. And, and if you don't fill it with, with something good, the sin stuff is just going to come right back in. That's just the way that we're wired. It's not unlike a, the, the floods that we've been having around here. You know, maybe you had some water coming up onto your doorstep and you take a broom or a shovel and you're trying to push that water and mud away and it just washes right around the broom or shovel and floods right back in. And that's what happens when we try to get rid of something. It isn't until you set up those boundaries and barricades to keep that water out. And that's what we do in Christ. We set up new habits, new behaviors, to keep the, when we say no to that, we say yes to Jesus and follow his plan. And we make choices that lead to holiness and eternal life. That's what God has called us to. Now, my concern here this morning is that, that maybe you've heard all the sin and this anger and death and you got tripped up on that and somehow you've missed all the other stuff I've been saying about compassion and mercy and love and forgiveness and transfer, transformation. If you just look at this chapter all by itself and you never saw anything else about God, I can imagine you might have a slightly pessimistic view of God and, and faith in him. But seven to 800 years later or so, God gives us another account that directly ties into this, this story of Achan and his judgment. Hosea was a prophet, and God led him to marry a woman named Gomer. But Gomer, was, was, she was not a model wife. She was adulterous, she was a prostitute, 
And over many, many times, Hosea uh, was led to bring her back, to welcome her home. And not just to open his doors to her in hopes that she might return, but instead to go out and pursue her, to seek her out. And the message and the interpretation God makes very clear in the book of Hosea, and I encourage you to read it, it it made it very clear. Gomer was like the nation of Israel who continually strayed and they continually left God to worship other idols and and, uh, to prostitute and adulterate themselves to worship these idols and false gods. And yet God never gave up on them. In fact, he did just the opposite. He pursued them. And this is what God says in Hosea, but then I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. I will return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. She will give herself to me there as she did long ago when she was young, when I freed her from captivity in Egypt. When that day comes, says the Lord, You will call me my husband instead of my master. Now, if you recall, the Valley of Trouble was the very place where Achan was stoned and burned and the piles of stones were made. That area was named the Valley of Trouble from then on. But when God brings Israel back to relationship with him, he is no longer master but husband. He renames it the Gateway of Hope. Perhaps your life has been like a valley of trouble. You've been given labels like liar, cheater, adulterer, addict, disloyal, abuser, angry, or whatever other sin that labels your life, and you have owned it, and you have held on to that name as your identity. And you've used it to feel disqualified to be used of God, to be loved by God, to truly be open to being forgiven by God. But God's passion is for you. He is pursuing you. He loves you. And his love is real and powerful, and he wants to rename you. Walk through the gateway of hope and take a new name, a new label for your life, like maybe child of God, or sinner saved by grace, or forgiven made right. Trade that pile of stones that you just have weighing you down that memorialize your sin. Instead, trade it for a pile of stones that shows the greatness of God that will lead you into the promises, the hope, and the potential that he has for you. God loves you. God wants to forgive you through Jesus. God wants you to live free from sin. And it's not that God's against sin because he's some prude and can't stand it, you know, doesn't want you to have fun and a good time. That's not it at all. It's because he wants your life and others' lives to be the best that they can be in fullness and freedom and liberty and hope that comes in a relationship with him. He knows that sin does all those other horrible things to you. That's why he hates sin. That's why it angers him so much doesn't want you to be destroyed by it. His hopes for you are so much greater. So maybe this morning as I've been speaking, various sins and ideas and hurts and choices you've made have been flooding through your mind and memory. And 
And if you haven't dealt with those before, I just invite you to do it now. Why wait? Why wait? God just is going to say to you, with a deep love, I will take 